the disease of the Lady Madeline had long baffled the skill of her physicians. A settled apathy, a gradual wasting away of the person and frequent, although transient, affections of a partially cataleptical character were the unusual diagnosis. Hitherto she had steadily borne up against the pressure of her malady and had not betaken herself finally to bed. But on the closing in of the evening of my arrival at the house, she succumbed, as her brother told me at night with inexpressible agitation, to the prostrating power of the destroyer, and I learned that the glimpse I had obtained of her person would thus probably be the last I should obtain, that the lady, at least while living, would be seen by me no more. I'm Tori the Moth, and this is the Creepy Reads Podcast. And now for the continuation of The Fall of the House of Usher by Edgar Allan Poe. For several days ensuing, her name was unmentioned by either Usher or myself. And during this period, I was busied in earnest endeavors to alleviate the melancholy of my friend. We painted and read together, or I listened as if in a dream to the wild improvisations of his speaking guitar. And thus, as a closer and still closer intimacy admitted me more unreservedly into the recesses of his spirit, the more bitterly did I perceive the futility of all attempt at cheering a mind from which darkness, as if an inherent positive quality, poured forth upon all objects of the moral and physical universe in one unceasing radiation of gloom. I shall ever bear about me a memory of the many solemn hours I thus spent alone with the master of the house of Usher. Yet I should fail in any attempt to convey an idea of the exact character of the studies or of the occupations in which he involved me or led me the way. An excited and highly distempered ideality threw a sulfurous luster over all. His long, improvised dirges will ring forever in my ears. Among other things, I hold painfully in my mind a certain singular perversion and amplification of the wild air of the last waltz of von Weber. From the paintings over which his elaborate fancy brooded and which grew touch by touch into vagueness at which I shuddered the more thrillingly, because I shuddered knowing not why, from these paintings, vivid as their images now are before me, I would in vain endeavor to educe more than a small portion which should lie within the compass of merely written words. By the utter simplicity, by the nakedness of his designs, he arrested and overawed attention. If ever mortal painted an idea, that mortal was Roderick Usher. For me, at least, in the circumstances then surrounding me, there arose out of the pure abstractions which the hypochondriac contrived to throw upon his canvas an intensity of intolerable awe, no shadow of which felt I ever yet in the contemplation of the certainly glowing, yet too concrete reveries of Fuseli. One of the phantasmagoric conceptions of my friend, partaking not so rigidly of the spirit of abstraction, may be shadowed forth, although feebly in words. 
A small picture presented the interior of an immensely long and rectangular vault or tunnel with low walls, smooth, white, and without interruption or device. Certain accessory points of the design served well to convey the idea that this excavation lay at an exceeding depth below the surface of the earth. No outlet was observed in any portion of its vast extent, and no torch or other artificial source of light was discernible, yet a flood of intense rays rolled throughout and bathed the whole in a ghastly and inappropriate splendor. I have just spoken of that morbid condition of the auditory nerve which rendered all music intolerable to the sufferer with the exception of certain effects of stringed instruments. It was perhaps the narrow limits to which he thus confined himself upon the guitar which gave birth, in great measure, to the fantastic character of his performances. But the fervid facility of his impromptus could not be so accounted for. They must have been, and were, in the notes as well as in the words of his wild fantasias, for he not unfrequently accompanied himself with rhymed verbal improvisations. The result of that intense mental collectedness and concentration to which I have previously alluded as observable only in particular moments of the highest artificial excitement. The words of one of these rhapsodies I have easily remembered. I was perhaps the more forcibly impressed with it as he gave it, because in the under or mystic current of its meaning, I fancied that I perceived, and for the first time a full consciousness on the part of Usher, of the tottering of his lofty reason upon her throne. The verses which were entitled, The Haunted Palace, ran very nearly, if not accurately, thus. In the greenest of our valleys, by good angels tenanted, once a fair and stately palace, radiant palace, reared its head. In the monarch thought's dominion, it stood there. Never seraph spread a pinion over fabric half so fair. Banners yellow, glorious, golden, on its roof did float and flow. This, all this, was in the olden time long ago. And every gentle air that dallied in that sweet day Along the ramparts plumed and pallid, a winged odor went away. Wanderers in that happy valley through two luminous windows saw spirits moving musically to a lute's well-tuned law. Round about a throne where sitting Porphyrogene, in state his glory well befitting, the ruler of the realm was seen. And all with pearl and ruby glowing was the fair palace door, through which came flowing, 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 and sparkling evermore. A troop of echoes whose sweet duty was but to sing, in voices of surpassing beauty, the wit and wisdom of their king. But evil things in robes of sorrow assailed the monarch's high estate. Ah, let us mourn, for never morrow shall dawn upon him desolate, and round about his home the glory that blushed and bloomed is but a dim-remembered story of the old time entombed. And travelers now within that valley through the red-litten window see vast forms that move fantastically to a discordant melody, while like a rapid ghastly river through the pale door, a hideous throng rush out forever and laugh but smile no more. I well remember that suggestions arising from this ballad led us into a train of thought wherein there became manifest an opinion of Usher's, which I mention not so much on account of its novelty, 
for other men have thought thus, as on account of the pertinacity with which he maintained it. This opinion in its general form was that of the sentience of all vegetable things. But in his disordered fancy, the idea had assumed a more daring character and trespassed under certain conditions upon the kingdom of inorganization. I lack words to express the full extent or the earnest abandon of his persuasion. The belief, however, was connected, as I have previously hinted, with the gray stones of the home of his forefathers. The conditions of the sentience had been here, he imagined, fulfilled in the method of collocation of these stones, in the order of their arrangement, as well as in that of the many fungi which overspread them, and of the decayed trees which stood around, above all, in the long undisturbed endurance of this arrangement, and in its reduplication in the still waters of the tarn. Its evidence, the evidence of the sentience, was to be seen, he said, and I here started as he spoke, in the gradual yet certain condensation of an atmosphere of their own about the waters and the walls. The result was discoverable, he added, in that silent yet inopportunate and terrible influence which for centuries had molded the destinies of his family, and which made him what I now saw him, what he was. Such opinions need no comment, and I will make none. Our books, the books which for years had formed no small portion of the mental existence of the invalid, were as might be supposed in strict keeping with this character of phantasm. We poured together over such works as the Vever et Chartreuse of Grisette, the Belfegor of Machiavelli, the Heaven and Hell of Swedenborg, the Subterranean Voyage of Nicholas Klim by Holberg, the Chiromancy of Robert Flood, of Jean d'Indagenie and of De La Chambre, the Journey into the Blue Distance of Teak and the City of the Sun of Campanella. One favorite volume was a small octavo edition of the Directorium Inquisitorium by the Dominican Émeric de Giron. And there were passages in Pomponius Mela, about the old African satyrs, and edgy pens over which Usher would sit dreaming for hours. His chief delight, however, was found in the perusal of an exceedingly rare and curious book in quarto Gothic, the manual of a forgotten church, the Vigiliae Mortuorum Secundum Corum Ecclesiae Magontinae. I could not help thinking of the wild ritual of this work, and of its probable influence upon the hypochondriac, when one evening, having informed me abruptly that the Lady Madeline was no more, he stated his intention of preserving her corpse for a fortnight, previously to its final interment, in one of the numerous vaults within the main walls of the building. The worldly reason, however, assigned for this singular proceeding was one which I did not feel at liberty to dispute. The brother had been led to his resolution, so he told me, by consideration of the unusual character of the malady of the deceased, of certain obtrusive and eager inquiries on the part of her medical men, and of the remote and exposed situation of the burial ground of the family. I will not deny that when I called to mind the sinister countenance of the person whom I met upon the staircase on the day of my arrival at the house, I had no desire to oppose what I regarded as at best but a harmless and by no means an unnatural precaution. At the request of Usher, I personally aided him in the arrangements for the temporary entombment. The body having been encoffined, we too alone bore it to rest. 
the vault in which we placed it and which had been so long unopened that our torches, half smothered in its oppressive atmosphere, gave us little opportunity for investigation, was small, damp, and entirely without means of admission for light. Lying at great depth immediately beneath that portion of the building in which was my own sleeping apartment. It had been used, apparently, in remote feudal times for the worst purposes of a donjon keep, and in later days as a place of deposit for powder or some other highly combustible substance as a portion of its floor and the whole interior of a long archway through which we reached it were carefully sheathed with copper. The door of massive iron had been also similarly protected. Its immense weight caused an unusually sharp grating sound as it moved upon its hinges. Having deposited our mournful burden upon trestles within this region of horror, we partially turned aside the yet unscrewed lid of the coffin and looked upon the face of the tenant. A striking similitude between the brother and sister now first arrested my attention, and Usher, divining perhaps my thoughts, murmured out some few words from which I learned that the deceased and himself had been twins, and that sympathies of a scarcely intelligible nature had always existed between them. Our glances, however, rested not long upon the dead, for we could not regard her unawed. The disease which had thus entombed the lady in the maturity of youth had left, as usual, in all maladies of a strictly cataleptical character, the mockery of a faint blush upon the bosom and the face, and that suspiciously lingering smile upon the lip which is so terrible in death. We replaced and screwed down the lid, and, having secured the door of iron, made our way with toil into the scarcely less gloomy apartments of the upper portion of the house. And now some days of bitter grief having elapsed, an observable change came over the features of the mental disorder of my friend. His ordinary manner had vanished. His ordinary occupations were neglected or forgotten. He roamed from chamber to chamber with hurried, unequal, and objectless step. The pallor of his countenance had assumed, if possible, a more ghastly hue, but the luminousness of his eye had utterly gone out. The once occasional huskiness of his tone was heard no more, and a tremulous quaver, as if of extreme terror, habitually characterized his utterance. There were times, indeed, when I thought his unceasingly agitated mind was laboring with some oppressive secret, to divulge which he struggled for the necessary courage. At times again, I was obliged to resolve all into the mere inexplicable vagaries of madness, for I beheld him gazing upon vacancy for long hours, in an attitude of the profoundest attention, as if listening to some imaginary sound. It was no wonder that his condition terrified, that it infected me. I felt creeping upon me by slow yet certain degrees the wild influences of his own fantastic yet impressive superstitions. It was especially upon retiring to bed late in the night of the seventh or eighth day after the placing of the Lady Madeline within the dungeon that I experienced the full power of such feelings. Sleep came not near my couch while the hours waned and waned away. I struggled to reason off the nervousness which had dominion over me. I endeavored to believe that much, if not all, of what I felt was due to the bewildering influence of the gloomy furniture of the room, 
of the dark and tattered draperies which, tortured into motion by the breath of a rising tempest, swayed fitfully to and fro upon the walls and rustled uneasily about the decorations of the bed. But my efforts were fruitless. An irrepressible tremor gradually pervaded my frame, and at length there sat upon my very heart an incubus of utterly causeless alarm. Shaking this off with a gasp and a struggle, I uplifted myself upon the pillows and, peering earnestly within the intense darkness of the chamber, hearkened, I know not why, except that an instinctive spirit prompted me, to certain low and indefinite sounds which came through the pauses of the storm at long intervals, I know not whence. Overpowered by an intense sentiment of horror, unaccountable yet unendurable, I threw on my clothes with haste, for I felt that I should sleep no more during the night, and endeavored to arouse myself from the pitiable condition into which I had fallen by pacing rapidly to and fro through the apartment. I had taken but few turns in this manner when a light step on an adjoining staircase arrested my attention. I presently recognized it as that of Usher. In an instant afterward, he rapped with a gentle touch at my door and entered, bearing a lamp. His countenance was, as usual, cadaverously wan, but moreover there was a species of mad hilarity in his eyes and evidently restrained hysteria in his whole demeanor. His air appalled me, but anything was preferable to the solitude which I had so long endured, and I even welcomed his presence as a relief. "'And have you not seen it?' he said abruptly, after having stared about him for some moments in silence. "'You have not seen it, but stay, you shall!' Thus speaking, and having carefully shaded his lamp, he hurried to one of the casements and threw it freely open to the storm." The impetuous fury of the entering gust nearly lifted us from our feet. It was, indeed, a tempestuous yet sternly beautiful night, and one wildly singular in its terror and its beauty. A whirlwind had apparently collected its force in our vicinity, for there were frequent and violent alterations in the direction of the wind, and the exceeding density of the clouds, which hung so low as to press upon the turrets of the house, did not prevent our perceiving the lifelike velocity with which they flew, careering from all points against each other, without passing away into the distance. I say that even their exceeding density did not prevent our perceiving this, yet we had no glimpse of the moon or stars, nor was there any flashing forth of the lightning. But the undersurfaces of the huge masses of agitated vapor, as well as all terrestrial objects immediately around us, were glowing in the unnatural light of a faintly luminous and distinctly visible gaseous exhalation which hung about and enshrouded the mansion. You must not... "'You shall not behold this,' said I, shuddering to Usher, as I led him with gentle violence from the window to a seat. "'These appearances which bewilder you are merely electrical phenomena, not uncommon, or it may be that they have their ghastly origin in the rank miasma of the tarn. "'Let us close this casement. The air is chilling and dangerous to your frame. "'Here is one of your favorite romances.' I will read and you shall listen, and so we will pass away this terrible night together. The antique volume which I had taken up was The Mad Tryst of Sir Lancelot Canning, but I had called it a favorite of Usher's more in sad jest than in earnest, 
for in truth there is little in its uncouth and unimaginative prolixity which could have had interest for the lofty and spiritual ideality of my friend. It was, however, the only book immediately at hand, and I indulged a vague hope that the excitement which now agitated the hypochondriac might find relief, for the history of mental disorder is full of similar anomalies, even in the extremeness of the folly which I should read. Could I have judged, indeed, by the wild, overstrained air of vivacity with which he hearkened, or apparently hearkened, to the words of the tale, I might well have congratulated myself upon the success of my design. I had arrived at that well-known portion of the story where Ethelred, the hero of the tryst, having sought in vain for peaceable admission into the dwelling of the hermit, proceeds to make good an entrance by force. Here it will be remembered, the words of the narrative run thus. And Ethelred, who was by nature of a doughty heart, and who was now mighty withal on account of the powerfulness of the wine which he had drunken, waited no longer to hold parley with the hermit, who in sooth was of an obstinate and maliceful turn. But feeling the rain upon his shoulders and fearing the rising of the tempest, uplifted his mace outright, and with blows made quickly room in the plankings of the door for his gauntleted hand and now pulling therewith sturdily, he so cracked and ripped and tore all asunder that the noise of the dry and hollow-sounding wood alarmed and reverberated throughout the forest. At the termination of this sentence, I started, and for a moment paused, for it appeared to me, although I at once concluded that my excited fancy had deceived me, it appeared to me that from some very remote portion of the mansion there came indistinctly to my ears what might have been, in its exact similarity of character, the echo, but a stifled and dull one certainly, of the very cracking and ripping sound which Sir Lancelot had so particularly described. It was beyond doubt the coincidence alone which had arrested my attention, for amid the rattling of the sashes of the casements and the ordinary commingling noises of the still-increasing storm, the sound in itself had nothing, surely, which should have interested or disturbed me. I continued the story. But the good champion Ethelred, now entering within the door, was sore enraged and amazed to perceive no signal of the maliceful hermit but in the stead thereof a dragon of scaly and prodigious demeanor, and of a fiery tongue which Satan guard before a palace of gold, with a floor of silver, and upon the wall there hung a shield of shining brass with this legend in written. Who entereth herein, a conqueror hath been, who slayeth the dragon, the shield he shall win. And Ethelred uplifted his mace and struck upon the head of the dragon, which fell before him, and gave up his pesty breath with a shriek so horrid and harsh and withal so piercing that Ethelred had feigned to close his ears with his hands against the dreadful noise of it, the like whereof was never before heard. Here again I paused abruptly, and now with a feeling of wild amazement, for there could be no doubt whatever that, in this instance, I did actually hear, although from what direction it proceeded I found it impossible to say, a low and apparently distant but harsh, protracted, and most unusual screaming or grating sound, 
the exact counterpart of what my fancy had already conjured up for the dragon's unnatural shriek as described by the romancer. Oppressed as I certainly was upon the occurrence of this second and most extraordinary coincidence by a thousand conflicting sensations in which wonder and extreme terror were predominant, I still retained sufficient presence of mind to avoid exciting, by any observation, the sensitive nervousness of my companion. I was by no means certain that he had noticed the sounds in question, although, assuredly, a strange alteration had, during the last few minutes, taken place in his demeanor. From a position fronting my own, he had gradually brought round his chair so as to sit with his face to the door of the chamber, and thus I could but partially perceive his features, although I saw that his lips trembled as if he were murmuring inaudibly. His head had dropped upon his breast, yet I knew that he was not asleep from the wide and rigid opening of the eye as I caught a glance of it in profile. The motion of his body, too, was at variance with this idea, for he rocked from side to side with a gentle yet constant and uniform sway. Having rapidly taken notice of all this, I resumed the narrative of Sir Lancelot, which thus proceeded. And now the champion, having escaped from the terrible fury of the dragon, bethinking himself of the brazen shield and of the breaking up of the enchantment which was upon it, removed the carcass from out of the way before him and approached valorously over the silver pavement of the castle to where the shield was upon the wall, which in sooth tarried not for his full coming, but fell down at his feet upon the silver floor with a mighty great and terrible ringing sound. No sooner had these syllables passed my lips than, as if a shield of brass had indeed at the moment fallen heavily upon a floor of silver, I became aware of a distinct, hollow, metallic, and clangorous yet apparently muffled reverberation. Completely unnerved, I leaped to my feet, but the measured rocking movement of Usher was undisturbed. I rushed to the chair in which he sat. His eyes were bent fixedly before him, and throughout his whole countenance, there reigned a stony rigidity. But as I placed my hand upon his shoulder, there came a strong shudder over his whole person. A sickly smile quivered about his lips, and I saw that he spoke in a low, hurried, and gibbering murmur, as if unconscious of my presence. Bending closely over him, I at length drank in the hideous import of his words. Not hear it? Yes, I hear it, and have heard it. Long, long, long. Many minutes, many hours, many days have I heard it. Yet I dared not, oh, pity me, miserable wretch that I am, I dared not, I dared not speak. We have put her living in the tomb. Said I not that my senses were acute? I now tell you that I heard her first feeble movements in the hollow coffin. I heard them many, many days ago, yet I dared not, I dared not speak. And now, tonight, Ethelred, <laughs> the breaking of the hermit's door and the death cry of the dragon and the clangor of the shield, say rather the rending of her coffin and the grating of the iron hinges of her prison and her struggles within the coppered archway of the vault. Oh, whither shall I fly? Will she not be here anon? Is she not hurrying to upbraid me for my haste? 
Have I not heard her footstep on the stair? Do I not distinguish that heavy and horrible beating of her heart? Madman! Here he sprang furiously to his feet and shrieked out his syllables as if in the effort he were giving up his soul. Madman! I tell you that she now stands without the door! As if in the superhuman energy of his utterance, there had been found the potency of a spell. The huge, antique panels to which the speaker pointed threw slowly back upon the instant their ponderous and ebony jaws. It was the work of the rushing gust, but then... Without those doors there did stand the lofty and enshrouded figure of the Lady Madeline of Usher. There was blood upon her white robes and the evidence of some bitter struggle upon every portion of her emaciated frame. For a moment she remained trembling and reeling to and fro upon the threshold, then with a low moaning cry fell heavily inward upon the person of her brother, and in her violent and now final death agonies bore him to the floor a corpse and a victim to the terrors he had anticipated. From that chamber and from that mansion I fled aghast. The storm was still abroad in all its wrath as I found myself crossing the old causeway. Suddenly there shot along the path a wild light, and I turned to see whence a gleam so unusual could have issued, for the vast house and its shadows were alone behind me. The radiance was that of the full, setting, and blood-red moon which now shone vividly through that once barely discernible fissure of which I have before spoken as extending from the roof of the building in a zigzag direction to the base." While I gazed, this fissure rapidly widened. There came a fierce breath of the whirlwind. The entire orb of the satellite burst at once upon my sight. My brain reeled as I saw the mighty walls rushing asunder. There was a long, tumultuous shouting sound like the voice of a thousand waters, and the deep and dank tarn at my feet closed suddenly and silently over the fragments of the House of Usher. And that concludes The Fall of the House of Usher by Edgar Allan Poe. Thank you so much for tuning in for that story in two parts. That was our first serialization for the podcast. Let me know what you think about that setup. You can hit me up on Instagram at Tori underscore the underscore moth or email me Tori the moth at gmail.com. And let me know how you're feeling this serialization thing that we've started this year. That was something new for 2022. I hope you guys enjoyed the story. It was a very wordy one to record. I tripped over my tongue several times during the course of this recording, if I'm being perfectly honest. But it was very fun, especially at the end when I got to shout and act like a madman. Those are always my favorite ones. The next story I'll be sharing is one that I only recently stumbled across in my search for scary stories in the public domain, and I'm really excited about it because this particular work was written by a woman in the Victorian era, and we have not had a story that was written by a lady since the very first episode, The Yellow Wallpaper by Charlotte Perkins Gilman. And if you haven't listened to that episode, go check it out. Shameless plug. It is still my favorite. The next story will probably also be done in two parts. And after that, who knows what terrifying tales we will come across together. Thank you again for tuning in. I am Tori the Moth, and this has been the Creepy Reads Podcast. Until next time. <laughs>